Robinson Crusoe, Part 10. This recording, copyright Candlelight Stories, Inc., available at candlelightstories.com. Narrated by Alessandro Chima. A Candlelight Stories audio production. The Life and Strange, Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner by Daniel Defoe It was a good while before they would feed, but throwing them some sweet corn, it tempted them, and they began to be tame. And now I found that if I expected to supply myself with goat's flesh when I had no powder or shot left, breeding some up tame was my only way, when perhaps I might have them about my house like a flock of sheep. But then it presently occurred to me that I must keep the tame from the wild, or else they would always run wild when they grew up, and the only way for this was to have some enclosed piece of ground, well fenced either with hedge or pale, to keep them in so effectually that those within might not break out and those without break in. This was a great undertaking for one pair of hands. Yet, as I saw, there was an absolute necessity of doing it. My first piece of work was to find out a proper piece of ground, namely, where there was likely to be herbage for them to eat, water for them to drink, and cover to keep them from the sun. Those who understand such enclosures will think I had very little contrivance, when I pitched upon a place very proper for all these, being a plain open piece of meadowland, or savanna, as our people call it in the western colonies, which had two or three little rills of fresh water in it, and at one end was very woody, I say they will smile at my forecast, when I shall tell them I began my enclosing of this piece of ground in such a manner that my hedge or pail must have been at least two miles about, nor was the madness of it so great as to the compass, for if it was ten miles about, I was like to have time enough to do it in, but I did not consider that my goats would be as wild in so much compass as if they had had the whole island, and I should have so much room to chase them in that I should never catch them. My hedge was began and carried on, I believe, about fifty yards when this thought occurred to me, so I presently stopped short, and for the first beginning I resolved to enclose a piece of about one hundred fifty yards in length and one hundred yards in breadth, which, as it would maintain as many as I should have in any reasonable time, so, as my flock increased, I could add more ground to my enclosure. This was acting with some prudence, and I went to work with courage. I was about three months hedging in the first piece, and till I had done it, I tethered the three kids in the best part of it, and used them to feed as near me as possible to make them familiar, and very often I would go and carry them some ears of barley or a handful of rice, and feed them out of my hand, so that after my enclosure was finished, and I let them loose, they would follow me up and down, bleating after me for a handful of corn. This answered my end, and in about a year and a half I had a flock of about twelve goats, kids and all and in two years more I had three and forty, besides several I took and killed for my food, and after that I enclosed five several pieces of ground to feed them in, with little pens to drive them into to take them as I wanted them, and gates out of one piece of ground into another. But this was not all. For now, I not only had goat's flesh to feed on when I pleased, but milk, too, a thing which indeed in my beginning I did not so much as think of, and which, when it came into my thoughts, was really an agreeable surprise. For now I sat up my dairy, and had sometimes a gallon or two of milk in a day, 
and as nature, who gives supplies of food to every creature, dictates even naturally how to make use of it, so I, that had never milked a cow, much less a goat, or seen butter or cheese made, very readily and handily, though after a great many essays and miscarriages, made me both butter and cheese at last, and never wanted it afterwards. How mercifully can our great Creator treat His creatures, even in those conditions in which they seem to be overwhelmed in destruction? How can he sweeten the bitterest providences and give us cause to praise him for dungeons and prisons? What a table was here spread for me in a wilderness where I saw nothing at first but to perish for hunger. It would have made a stoic smile to have seen me and my little family sit down to dinner. There was my majesty, the prince and lord of the whole island. I had the lives of all my subjects at absolute command. I could hang, draw, give liberty, and take it away, and no rebels among all my subjects. Then to see how like a king I dined, too, all alone, attended by my servants. Paul, as if he had been my favorite, was the only person permitted to talk to me. My dog, which was now grown old and crazy and found no species to multiply his kind upon, sat always at my right hand, and two cats— one on one side the table and one on the other, expecting now and then a bit from my hand as a mark of special favor. But these were not the two cats which I brought on shore at first, for they were both of them dead, and had been interred near my habitation by my own hands. But one of them, having multiplied by I know not what kind of creature, these were two which I preserved tame, whereas the rest ran wild into the woods, and became indeed troublesome to me at last, for they would often come into my house and plunder me too till at last I was obliged to shoot them, and did kill a great many. At length they left me with this attendance, and in this plentiful manner I lived. Neither could I be said to want anything but society, and of that, in some time after this, I was like to have too much. I was something impatient, as I have observed, to have the use of my boat, though very loath to run any more hazard, and therefore sometimes I sat contriving ways to get her about the island, and at other times I sat myself down contented enough without her. But I had a strange uneasiness in my mind to go down to the point of the island, where, as I have said in my last ramble, I went up the hill to see how the shore lay and how the current set, that I might see what I had to do. This inclination increased upon me every day, and at length I resolved to travel thither by land, and following the edge of the shore I did so. But had any one in England been to meet such a man as I was, it must either have frightened them or raised a great deal of laughter, and, as I frequently stood still to look at myself, I could not but smile at the notion of my travelling through Yorkshire with such an equipage and in such a dress. I had a great high shapeless cap, made of goatskin, with a flap hanging down behind, as well to keep the sun from me as to shoot the rain off from running into my neck, nothing being so hurtful in these climates as the rain upon the flesh under the clothes. I had a short jacket of goat-skin, the skirts coming down to about the middle of my thighs, and a pair of open-kneed breeches of the same. The breeches were made of the skin of an old he-goat, whose hair hung down such a length on either side that, like pantaloons, it reached to the middle of my legs. Stockings and shoes I had none, but I made me a pair of something, I scarce know what to call them, like buckskins, to flap over my legs and lace on either side like spatterdashes, but of a most barbarous shape, as indeed were all the rest of my clothes. I had on a broad belt of goatskin dried, which I drew together with two thongs of the same instead of buckles, and in a kind of frog on either side of this, instead of a sword and dagger, hung a little saw and hatchet, one on one side, one on the other. 
I had another belt, not so broad, and fastened it in the same manner, which hung over my shoulder, and at the end of it, under my left arm, hung two pouches, both made of goatskin too, in one of which hung my powder, in the other my shot. At my back I carried my basket, on my shoulder my gun, and over my head a great clumsy ugly goatskin umbrella, but which, after all, was the most necessary thing I had about me next to my gun. As for my face, the color of it was really not so mulatto-like as one might expect from a man not at all careful of it, and living within nine or ten degrees of the equinox. My beard I had once suffered to grow till it was about a quarter of a yard long. But as I had both scissors and razors sufficient, I had cut it pretty short, except what grew on my upper lip, which I had trimmed into a large pair of Mahometan whiskers, such as I had seen worn by some Turks whom I saw at Saleh, for the Moors did not wear such, though the Turks did. Of these mustachios, or whiskers, I will not say they were long enough to hang my hat upon them, but they were of length and shape monstrous enough, and such as in England would have passed for frightful. But all this is by the by, for, as to my figure, I had so few to observe me, that it was no manner of consequence, so I say no more to that part. In this kind of figure I went my new journey, and was out five or six days. I travelled first along the seashore, directly to the place where I first brought my boat to an anchor, to get up upon the rocks, and having no boat now to take care of, I went over the land a nearer way, to the same height that I was upon before when looking forward to the point of the rock i was obliged to double with my boat as i said above i was surprised to see the sea all smooth and quiet no rippling no motion no current any more there than in other places i was at a strange loss to understand this and resolved to spend some time in the observing of it to see if nothing from the sets of the tide had occasioned it but I was presently convinced how it was, namely, that the tide of ebb setting from the west and joining with the current of waters from some great river on the shore, must be the occasion of this current, and that accordingly as the wind blew more forcibly from the west, or from the north, this current came nearer or went farther from the shore, for waiting thereabouts till evening, I went up to the rock again, and then the tide of ebb being made, I plainly saw the current again as before, only that it ran farther off, being near half a league from the shore whereas in my case it set close upon the shore and hurried me and my canoe along with it which at another time it would not have done this observation convinced me that i had nothing to do but to observe the ebbing and the flowing of the tide and i might very easily bring my boat about the island again but when i began to think about putting it in practice i had such terror upon my spirits at the remembrance of the danger i had been in that I could not think of it again with any patience, but on the contrary, I took up another resolution, which was more safe, though more laborious, and this was, that I would build, or rather make me, another periagua, or canoe, and so have one for one side of the island, and one for the other. You are to understand that now I had, as I may call it, two plantations in the island, one my little fortification or tent, with the wall about it under the rock, with the cave behind me, which by this time I had enlarged into several apartments, or caves, one within another. One of these, which was the driest and largest, and had a door yet beyond my wall or fortification, that is to say, beyond where my wall joined to the rock, was all filled up with large earthen pots, of which I have given an account, and with fourteen or fifteen great baskets, which would hold five or six bushels each, where I laid up my stores of provision, especially my corn, some in the ear cut off short from the straw, and the other rubbed out with my hands. 
As for my wall, made as before with long stakes or piles, those piles grew all like trees, and were by this time grown so big and spread so very much that there was not the least appearance to any one's view of any habitation behind them. Near this dwelling of mine, but a little farther within the land and upon lower ground, lay my two pieces of corn ground which I kept duly cultivated and sowed, and which duly yielded me their harvest in its season, and whenever I had occasion for more corn I had more land adjoining as fit as that. Besides this, I had my country seat, and I had now a tolerable plantation there also, for first I had my little bower, as I called it, which I kept in repair, that is to say, I kept the hedge which circled it in constantly fitted up to its usual height, the latter standing always in the inside. I kept the trees, which at first were no more than my stakes, but were now grown very firm and tall. I kept them always so cut, that they might spread and grow thick and wild, and make the more agreeable shade, which they did effectually to my mind. In the middle of this I had my tent, always standing, being a piece of sail spread over poles set up for that purpose, and which never wanted any repair or renewing, and under this I had made me a squab or couch, with the skins of the creatures I had killed, and with other soft things, and a blanket laid on them, such as belonged to our sea-bedding, which I had saved, and a great watch-coat to cover me, and here, whenever I had occasion to be absent from my chief seat, I took up my country habitation." Adjoining to this I had many enclosures for my cattle, that is to say, my goats, and as I had taken an inconceivable deal of pains to fence and enclose this ground, I was so uneasy to see it kept entire, lest the goats should break through, that I never left off, till with infinite labor I had stuck the outside of the hedge so full of small stakes and so near to one another, that it was rather a pail than a hedge and there was scarce room to put a hand through between them, which afterwards, when those stakes grew, as they all did in the next rainy season, made the enclosure strong, like a wall, indeed stronger than any wall. This will testify for me that I was not idle, and that I spared no pains to bring to pass whatever appeared necessary for my comfortable support, for I considered the keeping up a breed of tame creatures thus at my hand would be a living magazine of flesh, milk, butter, and cheese for me, as long as I lived in the place, if it were to be forty years, and that keeping them in my reach depended entirely upon my perfecting my enclosures to such a degree that I might be sure of keeping them together, which, by this method indeed, I so effectually secured that, when these little stakes began to grow, I had planted them so very thick I was forced to pull some of them up again. In this place also I had my grapes growing, which I principally depended on for my winter store of raisins, and which I never failed to preserve very carefully as the best and most agreeable dainty of my whole diet, and indeed they were not only agreeable, but physical, wholesome, nourishing, and refreshing to the last degree. As this was also about halfway between my other habitation and the place where I had laid up my boat, I generally stayed and lay here in my way thither, for I used frequently to visit my boat, and I kept all things about or belonging to her in very good order. Sometimes I went out in her to divert myself, but no more hazardous voyages would I go, nor scarce ever above a stone's cast or two from the shore. I was so apprehensive of being hurried out of my knowledge again by the currents or winds or any other accident. But now I come to a new scene of my life. It happened one day, about noon, going towards my boat, I was exceedingly surprised 
with the print of a man's naked foot on the shore, which was very plain to be seen in the sand. I stood like one thunderstruck, or as if I had seen an apparition. I listened. I looked round me. I could hear nothing nor see anything. I went up to a rising ground to look farther. I went up the shore and down the shore, but it was all one. I could see no other impression but that one. I went to it again, to see if there were any more, and to observe if it might not be my fancy. But there was no room for that, for there was exactly the very print of a foot, toes, heel, and every part of a foot. How it came thither I knew not, nor could in the least imagine. But after innumerable fluttering thoughts, like a man perfectly confused, and out of myself, I came home to my fortification, not feeling, as we say, the ground I went on, but terrified to the last degree, looking behind me at every two or three steps, mistaking every bush and tree, and fancying every stump at a distance to be a man. Nor is it possible to describe how many various shapes an affrighted imagination represented things to me in, how many wild ideas were formed every moment in my fancy, and what strange, unaccountable whimsies came into my thoughts, by the way. When I came to my castle, for so I think I called it ever after this, I fled into it like one pursued, whether I went over by the ladder, as first contrived, or went in at the hole in the rock which I called a door, I cannot remember. No, nor could I remember the next morning, for never frighted hare fled to cover or fox to earth with more terror of mind than I to this retreat. I had no sleep that night. The farther I was from the occasion of my fright, the greater my apprehensions were, which is something contrary to the nature of such things— and especially to the usual practice of all creatures in fear, but I was so embarrassed with my own frightful ideas of the thing that I formed nothing but dismal imaginations to myself, even though I was now a great way off it. At last I concluded that it must be some more dangerous creature, namely, that it must be some of the savages of the mainland over against me who had wandered out to sea, in their canoes, and, either driven by the currents or by contrary winds, had made the island, and had been on shore, but were going away again to sea, being as loath, perhaps, to have stayed in this desolate island as I would have been to have had them. While these reflections were rolling upon my mind, I was very thankful in my thought that I was so happy as not to be thereabouts at that time, or that they did not see my boat, by which they would have concluded that some inhabitants had been in the place, and perhaps have searched farther for me. Then terrible thoughts racked my imaginations about their having found my boat, and that there were people here, and that, if so, I should certainly have them come again in great numbers, and devour me, that if it should happen so that they should not find me, yet they would find my enclosure, destroy all my corn, carry away all my flock of tame goats, and I should perish at last." for mere want. Thus my fear banished all my religious hope, all that former confidence in God, which was founded upon such wonderful experience as I had had of his goodness, now vanished, as if he, 
that had fed me by miracle hitherto, could not preserve by his power the provision which he had made for me by his goodness. I reproached myself with my easiness that would not sow any more corn one year than would just serve me till the next season, as if no accident could intervene to prevent my enjoying the crop that was upon the ground, and this I thought so just a reproof that I resolved for the future to have two or three years' corn beforehand, so that whatever might come I might not perish for want of bread. These thoughts took me up many hours, days, nay, I may say, weeks and months, and one particular effect of my cogitations on this occasion I cannot omit, namely, one morning early lying in bed and filled with thoughts about my danger from the appearance of savages, I found it discomposed me very much, upon which those words of the scripture came into my thoughts. Call upon me. In the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. In the middle of these cogitations, apprehensions, and reflections, it came into my thoughts one day that all this might be a mere shimmer of my own, and that this foot might be the print of my own foot when I came on shore from my boat. This cheered me up a little, too and I began to persuade myself it was all a delusion, that it was nothing else but my own foot. And why might not I come that way from the boat as well as I was going that way to the boat? Again, I considered also that I could by no means tell for certain where I had trod, and where I had not, and that, if at last this was only the print of my own foot, I had played the part of those fools who strive to make stories of specters and apparitions, and then are themselves frighted at them more than anybody else. Now I began to take courage, and to peep abroad again, for I had not stirred out of my castle for three days and nights, so that I began to starve for provision, for I had little of nothing within doors but some barley cakes and water. Then I knew that my goats wanted to be milked, too, which usually was my evening diversion, and the poor creatures were in great pain and inconvenience for want of it, and indeed it almost spoiled some of them, and almost dried up their milk. Heartening myself, therefore, with the belief that this was nothing but the print of one of my own feet, and so I might be truly said to start at my own shadow, I began to go abroad again, and went to my country house to milk my flock, but to see with what fear... I went forward, how often I looked behind me, how I was ready every now and then to lay down my basket and run for my life. It would have made any one have thought I was haunted with an evil conscience, or that I had been lately most terribly frighted, and so indeed I had. However, as I went down thus two or three days, and having seen nothing, I began to be a little bolder, and to think there was really nothing in it but my imagination but I could not persuade myself fully of this till I should go down to the shore again and see this print of a foot, and measure it by my own, and see if there was any similitude of fitness that I might be assured it was my own foot. But when I came to the place first it appeared evidently to me that when I laid up my boat I could not possibly be on shore anywhere thereabouts. Secondly, when I came to measure the mark with my own foot, I found my foot not so large by a great deal. Both these things filled my head with new imaginations, and gave me the vapors again to the highest degree, so that I shook with cold like one in an ague, and I went home again, 
filled with the belief that some man or men had been on shore there, or, in short, that the island was inhabited, and I might be surprised before I was aware, and what course to take for my security I knew not. This confusion of my thoughts kept me waking all night, but in the morning I fell asleep, and having by the amusement of my mind been, as it were, tired, and my spirits exhausted, I slept very soundly, and awakened much better composed than I had ever been before. And now I began to think, sedately, and, upon the utmost debate with myself, I concluded that this island, which was so exceeding pleasant, fruitful, and no farther from the mainland than as I had seen, was not so entirely abandoned as I might imagine. That although there were no stated inhabitants who lived on the spot, yet that there might sometimes come boats off from the shore, who either with design, or perhaps never but when they were driven by cross-winds, might come to this place. That I had lived here fifteen years now, and had not met with the least shadow or figure of any people before, and that, if at any time they should be driven here, it was probable they went away again as soon as ever they could, seeing they had never thought fit to fix there upon any occasion to this time. That the most I could suggest any danger from was from any such casual, accidental landing of straggling people from the main who, as it was likely, if they were driven hither, were here against their wills, so they made no stay here, but went off again with all possible speed, seldom staying one night on shore, lest they should not have the help of the tides and daylight back again, and that, therefore, I had nothing to do but to consider of some safe retreat, in case I should see any savages land upon the spot. Now I began sorely to repent that I had dug my cave so large as to bring a door through again, which door, as I said, came out beyond where my fortification joined to the rock. Upon maturely considering this, therefore, I resolved to draw me a second fortification, in the manner of a semicircle at a distance from my wall, just where I planted a double row of trees about twelve years before, of which I made mention. These trees, having been planted so thick before, there wanted but a few piles to be driven between them, that they should be thicker and stronger, and my wall would be finished. So that I had now a double wall, and my outer wall was thickened with pieces of timber, old cables, and everything I could think of to make it strong, having in it seven holes about as big as I might put my arm out at. In the inside of this I thickened my wall to about ten feet thick, continually bringing earth out of my cave, and laying it at the foot of the wall, and walking upon it, and through the seven holes I contrived to plant muskets, of which I took notice that I got seven on shore out of the ship. These, I say, I planted like my cannon, and fitted them into frames that held them like a carriage, that so I could fire all the seven guns in two minutes' time. This wall I was many a weary month in finishing, and yet never thought myself safe till it was done. Candlelight Stories Audio Production.